welcome to episode 1340 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and today I am joined by a guest co-host, Zach Cram, my friend and colleague from The Ringer. Hello, Zach. Not the real co-host. Hello. Yeah, I realize I'm probably putting you in a tough spot here because if you've been looking at the Facebook group, which hopefully for your peace of mind you haven't, the fan base is in a furor right now wondering who the next co-host is. I think there are three separate polls or bets about who it will be. And meanwhile, here you are just waltzing in in the middle of all of this, just innocently being asked to guest co-host today. It's not your fault that you are not the permanent co-host, so no one blame Zach. Blame the Rays instead. You know what I'm like? I'm like uh, I'm like Brandon Drury. You had... Josh Donaldson making everyone happy, winning an MVP. You have Vladimir Jr. about to make an appearance. But, you know, the next host has to work on their defense for a bit until it magically improves in a very short period of time. So here I am holding the fort in the meantime. Yeah, Brandon Drury's had a a couple of tough years, I guess, from his perspective, right? Because he was with the Yankees last year, and he was basically just marking time until Glaber Torres showed up or more promising players showed up, and then he was stuck in AAA for a while, and then he got moved, and now he's just the guy keeping Vlad Guerrero's seat warm, which uh, I guess too bad for Brandon Drury, but on the other hand, better than maybe he would get if teams weren't actually manipulating service time and were just promoting the best players. So maybe it's working out okay for him. Just give us Vlad. Yeah. So I will announce the co-host as soon as I can. I don't mean to keep anyone waiting longer than I have to. All I can say is that based on the discussion I've seen so far, I think people will be pleased. But I appreciate your filling in. And we actually have a lot to talk about today. We have a team preview podcast to do because the team preview series must go on. Opening day is not delayed because Jeff got a new job. So we will be doing another athletic twofer today. We'll be talking to Josh Tolentino, the newly christened Rays beat writer for The Athletic, and we'll also be talking to an old friend, Dennis Lynn, about the San Diego Padres, who are more interesting than they used to be, and uh, we've actually talked about them recently, but we will talk about them again. But there has been some baseball news, and you and I have discussed some of it already on the Ringer MLB show, but welcome to my world, (laughs) and get used to talking about baseball stuff in two places and saying different things each time, but... Before we get to the extension news, I wanted to talk about a few things that we did not cover on our other show together. Clayton Kershaw has begun spring training in demoralizing fashion, and you and I, I think, have both written about and lamented the decline of Kershaw over the past year, and this year he doesn't even have to wait for the midseason back injury to strike. He is now having arm issues that, even more sad than arm issues, seem to be a result possibly of him trying to regain some of his lost velocity. Obviously concerning for the Dodgers, but very concerning for anyone who's hoping for a Clayton Kershaw bounce back. And I mean, if you look at it, who's the comparison that Kershaw's always had? It's Sandy Koufax, and Kershaw just finished his age 30 season. Koufax's last season was his age 30 season, and I'm not saying Clayton Kershaw's done, but the, the poetic resonance is kind of a a little on the nose. Yeah, right. And a lot of people will also bring up Justin Verlander as an example of someone who was a power pitcher and then went through a dip and a decline where people thought he was done and then he bounced back and adjusted. I don't know that he's actually a good comp or a comp that you could hope for any other pitcher to mimic because 
thing about Justin Verlander is he still throws really ridiculously hard. Like his velocity went away and then it came back. And we found out that it was probably because he was dealing with some injuries that weren't public knowledge at the time. But it's not like he's one of these guys who just learned to pitch with diminished stuff. Like all of his stuff is still there, which is really rare for a pitcher his age. So you could hope that Kershaw will follow the Verlander path, but it seems like the, I don't know, the CC Sabathia path is is maybe the more likely one for him at this point. And I think it's necessary to point out that Kershaw was by no means bad last year. I think he still had an ERA below three, but it was just in comparison to what he usually is, a 142 ERA plus is mere mortal territory for him. And I think right. the trend line is really the worrisome part, and it's a matter of at his peak, it wasn't just his fastball, it was his off-speed pitches were the best in the game. And if he doesn't have the fastball to complement it, to then his off-speed pitches lose some effectiveness. And I think that's where the concern grows, that it will sort of mushroom into this bigger problem. Yeah, and I don't know that it's such a concern for the Dodgers right now, just because even after the Machado signing, I think there's a lot of room between them and the next best team in this division. Of course, a lot of things could go wrong. A lot of things did go wrong for them at the beginning of last year, and still they won the division again. And it seems like they have a lot of starters who project pretty well as usual they just seem to have like two rotations worth of pitchers who could potentially take the ball at the beginning of games so even if Kershaw is unavailable for much of the year that hurts them of course but I don't think it really materially hurts their chances which is sort of sad to say but I guess it's a combination of a the Dodgers being a lot better than their closest competition in that division and b Kershaw not really being the unbeatable ace that he once was anyway and I wonder like Kershaw's been the Dodgers best pitcher for so long he's basically spanned this entire, I don't know if you would call it a dynasty because they don't have any titles, but this divisional dynastic run. And I don't know, would you project Kershaw to have the most wins above replacement of any Dodgers pitcher next year, even before the injury or, you know, the news of potential injury, I would have said maybe Walker Bueller could outperform him. Uh, And I think this news just reaffirms that possibility. Yeah, given how good Bueller looked last year in the playoffs, I I don't think that's unreasonable at all, given all of these injury concerns. So that's sort of sad if it's a, a changing of the guard, passing of the torch. Obviously, we're all hoping for another productive season from Kershaw, but... Part of the way that he would find his way back to dominance is by adding velocity, which we have seen some pitchers do. But if you overdo that, then maybe you can hurt yourself further. And that seems to be what's happened here. But again, there's plenty of time before opening day, and it's possible that this will all resolve itself. It's just that when you get to this age and when you have his recent injury history, you sort of have to take the under if you're playing the odds at this point. But we will continue to hope for better things ahead for Clayton Kershaw. I also want to talk about a lesser story that surfaced, or really it's a collection of stories, I guess. This came to the fore most recently with Francisco Liriano, who signed a a minor league deal with the Pirates. And he said something about how he received a bunch of offers that were all in the same range, and he got them all at the same time. It was like seven minor league offers came to him on the same day or something. And this sort of fit into a a couple other similar stories that we had seen in recent weeks where a couple other guys who signed as free agents, I think it was Mark Reynolds who signed with the Rockies and Brad Brock who signed with the Cubs. 
Brock said, we talked to certain teams and they told us that we have an algorithm and here's where you fall. It's just kind of weird that all offers are the same. They come around the same time. Everyone tells you there's an algorithm. Mark Reynolds had a a similar sort of story about just getting four offers all at once after not getting any offers all offseason. What do you make of this rash of stories of players getting similar offers from a bunch of teams at roughly the same time? Does this increase the the specter of collusion? Well, I agree with Brad Brock that it is kind of weird because even if teams are all sort of heading the same direction in the kind of analytics they're using and the algorithms they're creating, I, you know, I've never worked in a front office, but I can't imagine the algorithm says go offer X contract to this guy on like this particular day. So on the one hand, it's like almost too bafflingly dumb to be evidence of collusion because right. if teams really were colluding, they would be smarter and say, okay, you know, you go on the first day and we'll offer on the second day. And then those guys will offer on the third day and so on. But, you know, on the other hand, in the 1980s, when MLB was found guilty of collusion, someone had literally taken notes in the meeting where they decided to collude. And that was, a big piece of the evidence against them. So maybe that is the simplest explanation. Yeah, I guess you'd like to give them both more and less credit than that and assume that they would be smarter about their illegal dealings if they're going on. The thing is, I don't find the similar amounts that surprising because what Brock is saying about hearing that everyone has an algorithm, well, yeah, everyone does have an algorithm. And I think at this point, the front offices are all operating fairly similarly. So it would be strange I think if someone were valuing Brad Brock way differently than someone else, because all these teams are looking at mostly the same data, at least when it comes to players who are not in their organization. And so you wouldn't expect them to come to dramatically different conclusions. I mean, maybe you'd have different offers just based on roster needs and where you are in your competitive cycle and how much you need a reliever. But I wouldn't expect dramatically differing offers. The the more curious part is the timing and all these offers coming in at once. I could think of a a couple possible explanations other than collusion. I mean, there's some chance that maybe an agent has just been sitting on offers. Like we've heard of that practice happening every now and then where an agent is obligated to report whatever offers he gets to his client, but at times might choose not to notify his client immediately when those come in. And maybe he's holding out for a a more attractive deal, a bigger commission. And so he might not tell a player about a, a smaller offer that comes in and I don't know, maybe at some point you figure, okay, there's not going to be a big offer that comes in, so I'll just tell him about everything I've gotten. That's one possibility. Another is that maybe there are just certain times of year when you're more likely to extend an offer to a fringe guy who's going to be your 25th or 26th guy on the roster. Maybe as spring training approaches, that's when you're going to extend some more spring training invites and I don't know, you're moving guys to and from the 60-day DL or something, and you open up some spots, and that's all I can think of. As spring training gets closer, you know what your needs are, and you can kind of round out your spring training rosters. Those would be the less nefarious explanations, but it's somewhat suspicious. And I think perhaps we'll even grow more so because these players like Mark Reynolds and Francisco Liriano, who are receiving minor league deals, are not all-stars anymore, but they're still decent MLB veterans, and I think there's still plenty of veterans available, even if they're not at the Dallas Keuchel or Craig Kimbrell level, to say nothing of Bryce Harper's level. But you have players like Adam Jones who probably deserve a roster spot, but the way this offseason has gone, we'll probably have to settle 
for a minor league deal with like a, a spring training camp invite and they'll get X amount of money if they end up making the major league team. So it's almost like all these guys who have proven track records are needing to audition themselves. Mm -hmm. All right. So we have no Bryce Harper news to talk about. I half expected that we might by now, but I guess I should not be surprised that we do not. We have entered the plain watch portion of the Bryce Harper sweepstakes, which I always enjoy as a rumor genre. I like when people are looking at the transponder codes and seeing who's flying where, which I understand is more common in other sports, but does occasionally happen in baseball. I mean, is there any reason to think that this will not ultimately be the Phillies within the next few days or, or whenever it happens? We know that there are other teams in play. Maybe the Dodgers were the mystery team, the vaunted mystery team. The Giants still seem to be in it, but it just seems like all signs are still pointing to the Phillies. Well, if Smash Mouth gets their way, then he will end up in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I don't know, if Harper genuinely doesn't want to play in Philadelphia and I have no idea if that's the case. There have been differing reports about this, but you know, it's not just about the money. It's about his entire life. And if mm -hmm. it's actually true that he doesn't want to be in Philadelphia and I, I don't know what kind of monetary gap would close that, but it's possible. I just think, like you said, the combination of Philadelphia's need, their desire to spend money and the essentially lack of competition for a player of Harper's caliber still makes them the pretty heavy favorite in my mind. Yeah, that's the risk of if you're John Milton and you're saying that you're going to spend stupid money, you need someone on the other end accepting your stupid money in order to spend it, which usually it's not that hard to find someone to accept many millions of dollars. But in this case, there were really only two players who fit that description and, and would satisfy everyone and make Phillies fans feel like he made good on that promise. And so if the Padres come along with a $300 million offer out of nowhere for Machado, and then Harper, for whatever reasons, decides that he doesn't want to be a Philly, which may or may not be the case, but you may have to throw even more money at him to convince him to sign, or maybe you just can't, in which case I think the Phillies have done an awful lot this offseason, even without Harper. But as we talked to Matt Gelb about on the Phillies preview a couple of weeks ago, it'll be hard to remind Phillies fans of all of the activity that they've had this offseason if they don't end up with Harper. And I think they would benefit the most from Harper if we're talking about the Dodgers and the Giants because Dodgers are probably fine without Harper. The Giants are probably not fine even with Harper. Phillies really need him, and I think it would be a, a big upgrade for them, not only relative to who he'd be replacing, but just given the competition in that division. I think you should have just kept pushing the Phillies podcast back until Harper signed. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> I did push it back a little bit, but I couldn't wait forever. Yeah, and I think... It does bring into question like the order in which they made their moves, because if they hadn't, say, traded for JT Realmuto, I think maybe they'd have less pressure to really try for it now. But, you know, the fact that they added Realmuto, who has fewer years of team control remaining, means they need to take advantage of this window they've opened up. And the fact that someone like Nolan Arenado signed an extension and is no longer going to be a free agent next winter means that Harper, when that pool is dwindling, like you said, they need someone to accept their money, and Harper is now one of the last few remaining players as opposed to having a larger pool available. All right, so moving on to stuff that has actually happened as opposed to just being rumored for months on end. There was a, an interesting thing that happened on Tuesday where the Atlantic League, which is the highest level independent league, 
made an agreement or announced an agreement with MLB, a partnership that will last for the next three years where MLB will use the Atlantic League as a a testing ground for some new initiatives and they will be installing TrackMan and new technology in the Atlantic League ballparks, which of course will give MLB teams access to that data on those players, many of whom are recent major leaguers and future major leaguers. That's part of this, but it's also that MLB wants a a place that is not affiliated with any major league organization, but is a high level of professional play where they can test some stuff. And according to a J.J. Cooper report at Baseball America, they are talking about moving the mound back, my favorite initiative for changing the game, as well as possibly robo-umps all the time. So these are some significant changes. And we've seen MLB use like the Arizona Fall League to test certain things, but you don't want to mess with prospects too dramatically. So that's not the ideal place to really get wild. And then The Atlantic League has on its own experimented with some pace of play initiatives in the past, but this is new and potentially significant because we've seen lots of proposals bandied about, but the Atlantic League is like, you know, AAA level or even between AAA and and the major league level. and, And these are a lot of recognizable players. So to see this level of baseball possibly experimenting with this type of change That really does augur change coming to MLB at some point in the next few years, I think. And I wonder what metrics they'll use to determine how good these new changes are. Like if they move the mound back, will they just be looking at strikeout rates or how offense changes overall? And how will they decide what's good or not and what they would want to bring to the majors? And with RoboUmps, will they have actual umpires like judging to compare the two systems performance. And obviously, I think in JJ Cooper's report, he said nobody from the Atlantic League would even confirm those details yet. So we're maybe a ways away from that. But I think the more transparent Major League Baseball is with these potentially dramatic rule changes, uh, the better for everyone involved. Yeah, I think this is good. I think it's good to have this not at a a low level like the Arizona Fall League and not potentially screwing up prospects development, but guys who, for the most part, either they've already had their chance or they're fighting for a a chance back in. It's not really going to derail their progress as players, I don't think, but this is a, a high enough level of play that whatever happens in the Atlantic League, you figure would be pretty transferable to the majors. So I am very curious to see what happens here, especially if they go full robo-umps. Even when I saw this report initially, I saw a press release and it didn't mention any details. And I wasn't expecting something really that drastic because that's, you know, that's something that you figure that the umpires union probably is not going to be super pleased about unless they are keeping umpires in some form behind home plate just as a supplement, which I think makes sense even beyond the, you know, palatability concerns. But this could really be something that pushes the ball forward. And I don't know whether this means because this extends for three years, we won't see any of this happen within the next three years at the major league level, or whether if all goes well in 2019, we might see some of this stuff adopted. But that's next door to the majors, really, as much as AAA is. So I'm sort of excited about this. And other sports have used, I guess, their own minor leagues to try out new rule changes or technology or presentation changes. The NBA does that a lot uh, with their G League, uh, which is Mm -hmm. the minor league system. So I think it makes sense for baseball to be doing that, but also to be doing it with not Arizona Fall League pitchers. And like 
to be actually experimenting with real meaningful changes as opposed to like, I think I hate the put the runner on second base and extra innings as much as everyone else, but that's not like a change to every single pitch, like moving the mound back or adding a robo-ump would be. All right. So we did not have a Harper contract on Tuesday, but we did have a giant long-term contract. Nolan Arredondo has signed an extension with the Rockies that uh, will extend for eight years for a reported $260 million. There are opt-outs involved. Of course, we can discuss the details, but basically one of baseball's best players is going to have one of baseball's biggest contracts and highest AAV contracts and will be staying in Colorado for, if not his whole career, then at least the remainder of his prime. So what did you think about the news and about the terms? I liked it. I think it's a good deal for both player and team. Arenado is a very similar player to Manny Machado. I think they're probably the two best defensive third basemen of, I guess, this generation, if you don't count Adrian Beltre. They're two very good hitters. They're only 15 months apart in age. So if you look at the two contracts side by side, they're pretty similar. Machado got two extra years. Arenado got an extra two to three million dollars per year. So I think it makes sense given that context and just makes sense for Colorado, who has a history of extending their own players from just Charlie Blackman last season to Todd Helton, the best player in franchise history, spent his entire career with the Rockies. Now we can see if Arenado finishes his career better than Helton, but this obviously puts him further down that path in Colorado than he would have been otherwise had he become a free agent next winter. Yeah, the Rockies have done this a lot. It hasn't always worked out that well for him. I don't know that they're that pleased with the Charlie Blackman extension given the year he just had, which was a a step down from his previous performance. But they have shown a commitment to lock up players long term. And that is admirable, I think. They haven't always done well when they have dipped into the free agent market, but lately, at least, they have managed to surround Arenado with some really impressive homegrown players, mostly pitchers, and so they have this great homegrown rotation, but they've become this pitching and defense team, and Arenado, of course, is part of the defense aspect of things, but... The lineup, as we have discussed on this podcast, it looks better than it is because of the course field effect. And so you really have to keep Arenado in play if you want to keep that from becoming a a real black hole. And so I don't know if the Rockies are as well positioned as the Padres are right now, given the Padres' depth in the minor league system. But Arenado, he's kind of the foundational piece that if you start with a player like that, you have a lot less to do. You just have to fill in around that player, which is not easy, but it's easier than it is if you don't start with that kind of building block. I I do think he is probably slightly better than Machado defensively at this point, but probably inferior to Machado offensively. It's always difficult to evaluate how good Arenado is as a hitter because obviously his raw stats are really impressive, but when you adjust them for a course field, they don't look so hot. He does have, I think, a career 318 on base percentage, something like that, away from cores. And so you don't know whether that is just because, well, all players hit worse away from home. And when you're a Rockies player, you're going to hit a lot better at home or whether it is the course field hangover effect and the difficulty of pitches moving differently when you're moving from altitude to non-altitude. But 
this will not settle the question. I, I kind of always enjoy when a player goes from the Rockies and everyone thinks, oh, he's not good. He's only hitting because he's a, a course Field product. And then he goes somewhere else like Matt Holiday did or maybe like Larry Walker did. I guess he was elsewhere even before he was a Rocky. But when you can see them demonstrate their skills elsewhere – then no one can really hold course Field against them. And I guess Nolan Arenado's not going to have that because we'll continue to caveat as needed. It's funny. I actually might take Arenado's offense ahead of Machado's. But at least on defense, one of the things I looked up when I was writing this piece is I calculated defensive war per 162 games. So how much value a player added on defense over a full season. And obviously, the further back you go the less reliable defensive data becomes already in the present day. It's not super reliable, but if you look at the list, it's you know a pretty decent reflection of who we think the best defensive third basemen are. Adrian Beltre is number seven, Scott Rowland's number six, Manny Machado five, Cleet Boyer four, Brooks Robinson three, and then Nolan Arenado is second with 2.5 defensive war per 162 games in his career. So mm-hmm. he's one of the best defensive third basemen ever. Ben, have you heard of Lee Tannehill? I don't think so. Lee Tannehill is number one with 2.8 defensive war per 162 games. So I looked him up just to see who this guy was. He played 10 seasons for the White Sox from 1903 to 1912, and he had a career OPS plus of 70. So he was a (laughs) terrible hitter, and that means he must have been a good defender if he was going to last that long. I guess one one more fun Lee Tannehill fact, because this is effectively wild, is that he had a brother named Jesse who was also a major yeah. leaguer. And I looked Jesse up because ever since I learned who Johnny O'Brien was, courtesy of this podcast, <laughs> I have to look up brothers. And yes. it turns out that Jesse was a player at the same time, and he finished his career with an 89 OPS plus. So much better oh. than his brother. And Jesse was a pitcher. So that's not great for Lee. And then I also found one further thing, which is that Jesse Tannehill once threw a no-hitter against the White Sox and his brother Lee went 0 for 3 in that game. So Lee Tannehill might be the best defensive third baseman ever, but was still one-upped by his brother. Uh, but that's a tangent, and Nolan Arenado can hit. So unlike Lee Tannehill, <laughs> he's well worth his uh, $260 million. Wow, I should have played the stat blast song if I had known you were going <laughs> to roll out the Lee Tannehill stat. That was impressive. Unfortunately, we can't cold call him because he is extremely cold these days. Yeah, Nolan Arenado, not on the market. I'm sure that a lot of teams were salivating at the prospect of getting to bid for him next offseason, but now that is off the table. We also had a, a couple of other extensions signed. This is extension season, and it's it's always a little less interesting to talk about extensions than it is regular signings because a player is just staying in the same place instead of someone going somewhere else. But Miles Michaelis signed an extension with the Cardinals. He is someone that you have written about. We also had Aaron Hicks signing an extension with the Yankees. He is someone you have rooted for, at least. So what do you make of the Michaelis and Hicks extensions? I think the interesting thing about these extensions broadly, and Arenados is included in this, is there's been a lot of discussion about whether we'd see more early career extensions because players are worried about the free agent market and want to lock in dollars. But these extensions are different in kind from the ones that like Aaron Nola and Luis Severino and Max Kepler signed earlier this winter because Mm. those players all gave away arbitration years. And Michaelas and Hicks and Arenado were all just one season away from free agency. So I think the result of that is the contracts are a little less 
team friendly than a lot of the pre-arb contracts end up being because usually those like Aaron Nola's contract, for instance, lock in the players for such little money if they produce. Whereas like Arenado's eight for 260 or Miles Michaelis four for 68 is probably not that much more than he would have gotten on the open market next year. So to be able to get that for the player and secure that sort of long-term commitment I think makes a lot more sense for the players to sign. Yeah. And Aaron Hicks is uh, an interesting player development success story, a top prospect who scuffled for years with the Twins and then has found himself with the Yankees. And they signed him for seven years and $70 million, which, as our pal Michael Bauman pointed out on the Ringer Pod, is kind of a weird combination of dollars and years. It just seems like if you're going to get an extension that long, there would be more dollars associated with it. I think Michael called it a, a 1998 kind of contract it is odd i guess to see a player have the appeal to sign a, a long-term contract like that but also not be able to command more dollars than that and i think hicks is kind of underrated underappreciated because he plays on a yankees team with a lot of stars he's going to be flanked by aaron judge and john carlos stanton a lot of the time this year it would be easy to overlook anyone with two giants on either side like that but hicks has really made him himself into an extremely valuable player, kind of the the unsung hero of the Yankees in a way, both as a, a defender and as a hitter for the last couple of years. And, and Michaelis is obviously a, a guy also who kind of bloomed late, at least from a major league perspective, and came from overseas as a new man, sort of. So I guess both of these guys kind of fit into the trend of players reinventing themselves mid-career one way or another. And I think Hicks's story, the fact that he signed an extension this week is particularly notable because he was kind of the Byron Buxton 1.0, not that he was ever as highly regarded as Buxton was, but he came up through the same minor league system and he took sort of the same path of being really successful in the minors, but kind of being fast-tracked to the majors and struggling once he got there. So to see a tangible affirmation of Hicks's eventual career is kind of reassuring when Byron Buxton once again enters spring as a potential breakout candidate, but as sort of maybe this is the last time we can refer to Byron Buxton as a potential breakout candidate because it's been so long and he struggled so much last season. But Buxton is 5 for 5 with two home runs and a double at the start spring training, so it's kind of fortuitous to see those two in tandem once again. Mm-hmm. Last piece of news. I've really made you work for your guest host <laughs> slot here with half an hour of banter. Actually, there are two things. One, we haven't talked about Marwin Gonzalez on this podcast yet because he signed with the Twins after Jeff and I recorded our last podcast. And were Jeff here, I'm sure that we would discuss the Marwin Gonzalez signing in light of what it means for Williams Estadio more so than we would talk about it in light of what it means for Marwin. I know that you are a, a fellow Estadio acolyte. So, when you look at the Twins' opening day roster right now, do you think Astadio fits? Because there was already some question about that, as we discussed with Aaron Gleeman a few weeks ago. And now, when you have another multi-positional guy who can slot in everywhere, that just makes things even more difficult. It was really crushing, because my very first reaction when I saw the Gonzalez deal was that it was a pretty terrible contract for him, based on what we thought he would get at the start of the offseason. Even if he didn't get like the full Ben Zobrist four years, 56 million, I thought he would come in the range of that, maybe four years, 48. So to get, I think, what is it, two years and 21 million Mm -hmm. is a lot less in both years and dollars than I think he deserves. So my very first impulse was to 
feel kind of bad for Marwin Gonzalez. And then my very second thought was, oh no, what does this mean for Williams Astadio? <laughs> because when Gonzalez can play every single position that Astadio can except catcher, and the Twins already have two catchers, and Gonzalez doesn't, you know, have minor league options and is being paid eight figures, it kind of precludes uh, the need to have Astadio at least on opening day. Right. Well, I hope that that's not the case and that they somehow can find room for these guys. But it is interesting to me that Gonzalez got this deal when at the beginning of the offseason, it, it seemed like there were two guys really who were rumored to be connected to every team at the beginning of this offseason. And one was Marwin Gonzalez and the other was Nathan Ivaldi. And it, it seemed like both of those guys could slot in everywhere because Ivaldi could start or he could relieve and Gonzalez could play infield or outfield. You can kind of find a, a fit for either of those guys everywhere. And Ivaldi got seemingly a good contract to stay with the Sox and Gonzalez had to wait all winter. And so it's also strange because as I wrote and as we've discussed on this podcast, there is a trend toward more Marwin Gonzalez's in the majors and every team wants one. And yet at the same time, no teams seem to want that one, the brand name. So I don't know whether that is because people just don't believe in Marwin Gonzalez's bat potentially. Obviously, he didn't hit as well last year as he did the year before. Or whether it's just because people think that that skill set is more fungible, more replaceable, that you don't have to go out and get the guy who already plays a bunch of positions when you can just convert someone you already have in hand and say, well, you played one position last year, but what's to stop you from playing three or four this year? And if only because the Twins already had someone who could play every position and they went out and signed someone else and said, just my plea to the Twins, you have Byron Buxton, you sign Nelson Cruz. You even have Ronald Torres, even though he probably won't make the roster. Just promote Astudio, and you can be the team of baseball Twitter. Make it happen. You can do it. <laughs> yeah. All right. And the last bit of late-breaking news here is that Matt Wieters has signed a minor league deal with the Cardinals, could be in line for the backup job to Yadier Molina, which I think over the past decade or so has probably been one of the least desirable jobs or most thankless jobs in baseball, or from another perspective, maybe just the easiest job because you don't have to play very much. I think that the saga of poor Tony Cruz, who was Molina's backup for years and just never got into games because Molina never takes a day off. He has since gone elsewhere, but now Matt Wieters may be the guy to replace him. And Wieters is, I think, seen as a a disappointing player generally, but kind of a fascinating career. And I think maybe a guy who was kind of a, a victim of just a statistical mistake almost because a lot of the hype for Weeders and and there was a big scouting component too. He was someone scouts liked a lot, but a lot of the hype was built up because baseball prospectus projected him as like the second coming of Johnny Bench or something. And as I recall, a lot of that was based on just a, a mistake that came from translating his minor league stats in an incorrect way that made his minor league numbers look even more impressive than they were. And so when you translated that into major league stats, it looked like he was ready to win an MVP award as a rookie. And that didn't happen. But he's had a a pretty decent career if he hadn't come with that kind of prospect luster. And so I sort of feel bad for him that 
that happened and that he's had what by some measures is kind of an accomplished career. I mean, he's uh, now been in the big leagues for a decade. He's been to four all-star games, rightly or wrongly. He's won a couple of gold gloves. That is a success in some circles. And yet he is regarded, I think, as a, a disappointing player. In the last decade, Yadier Molina has qualified for the batting title nine out of 10 times, which is really hard to do for a catcher. No other yeah. catcher has done it more than six times in that span. So uh, enjoy your, what, like 30 starts, Matt Wieters. I'm <laughs> right. sorry. <laughs> All right. So we will take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a Rays preview, followed by a Padres preview. I don't mind a cold day now and then But this long, deep freeze has done me in and it's too late to plead your case so i'm going south to a warmer place all right so we are ready to preview the rays also known as the team that just took my co-host and to do that we are joined by newly anointed rays beat writer for the athletic josh tolentino hey josh how are you hey guys great to be on here man it's been a busy busy past couple days but glad we found some time and happy to talk some rays baseball yeah, I can imagine it's been busy. And before I ask you about the team, I want to ask you about you and how you came to this job and what it's like to take over a new beat. Because as of very recently, you were covering the Green Bay Packers for The Athletic. And I know that you have covered baseball before, but is this the sort of thing where you volunteer to cover the Rays? Are you assigned to cover the Rays? And, and how do you go about familiarizing yourself with a new team and, and the history of that team and knowing everyone's name? and where everything is it sounds very difficult of course it's a it's a pretty drastic change from football we'll discuss in a little bit but uh, in terms of the change that they just needed another beat writer with Juan Toribio leaving for the MLB a, a great guy I've gotten to know him pretty well already in the past couple of days and they had this opportunity and you know to to leave the negative 60 degree temperatures in Green Bay <laughs> just a week and a half ago for this actually I just got back from the gym a little bit ago and it's 70 degrees here and people are complaining how cold it is man it's uh like a 100 degree uh so a very drastic change in terms of weather and environment but you know it's an opportunity that i i, I really wanted to, to seize and you know now we're here covering this team and i know you say you're saying with the history and everything and just switching beats luckily you know the rays are a relatively new team uh not that old of a not that much history, but there is, you know, some history with, with the team. Obviously, they reached the World Series not too long ago. And obviously, coming off the 91 season last year, just, just missed the playoffs. Obviously, in the, in the, at competitive AL East, it's just crazy. 90 wins doesn't get you in the, in the MLB playoffs anymore. Not even the wild card, but it's an exciting team. And, and really just spring ball is an exciting time to, to be down here in, in Florida with the Grapefruit League. Yeah, well, there are fewer players to get to know than there are on a football team, although I guess that's not technically true in spring training, at least at the start. But what kind of research do you have to do? Because I'm guessing that you weren't following Rays baseball on a day-to-day basis while you're on the Packers beat. So how do you get up to speed on a new franchise and figure out where they were? Because it's probably tough to, to write about where they're going without figuring out where they've been. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned just the changes with numbers. I mean, you, you look at the players, and I know training camp and 
spring ball, those numbers will vary and they'll, they'll change very pretty soon here in the, the next couple of weeks, similar to football in preseason. But just the amount of games, man, it's like we're, I think, five, six games in now. Yeah. And, you know, that that's in football, that's approaching about half your season with 16 games. <laughs> I mean, with, uh, you know, you combine spring training and the regular season and, you know, who knows if the race thing in the postseason, that's 190, 200 plus games compared to 16. So that's schedule wise. It's, it's going to be a grind, but it's a grind I'm looking forward to. And it's a team that absolutely deserves the coverage. There's not much uh, that the media market uh, isn't that huge down here. So, I mean, there's definitely plenty of stories to tell. And, and right away, like what you said, it's just, I think it's the basics, just memorizing the roster, saying hi to guys. I've, I've sh- shaken a lot of hands front office guys, coaches, cash, obviously um, many, many players, maybe some players that might not even be here in a couple of weeks, but uh, it's just the the simple introductions and, and getting to know guys and their backgrounds and you know treating them as people and and from there the the relationships grow and then you know before we know it it'll, the spring training will be done and over with and they'll be hosting the Houston Astros at the uh, end of next month. So I know when you look at the Rays when you talk about the Rays the first thing that really steps out at you is their pitching and I know. One of your first pieces about the Rays was about how they have all these young pitchers on the team. Kevin Cash has said he's going to continue to use an opener or a bullpen game a few times through the rotation. Is the team really impressed with how that strategy worked last year and really confident that it will last the entire season uh, in 2019? Yeah, from an outsider's perspective, I mean, I heard of the opener and, you know, in minor league baseball, that's pretty common just because of the stretches of games that, that they go through. So it's nothing unfamiliar. But now being entrenched and in, in covering this team with, with Blake Snell and um, Charlie Morton, Tyler Glassnell leading that, that rotation, and then just having those two opener guys behind them, it's interesting. And obvi- it's it's something in, in case of the Rays, who who become one of the most, I mean, prolific in terms of technology and trying to be advanced with, you know, all their analytics from up and down inside the department. You know, the term, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That that kind of applies to this team right here. They won plenty of games that, you know, they just only needed to win a couple more sneaking in that wild card spot last year. So for, for them, it's really, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And we haven't actually um, been able to see Blake Snell in a live game setting. He sets the, the pitch here this this upcoming Thursday, this week of the, the second week of spring training. And and Charlie Morton and I will be set to, to go behind him. But from there, we'll see really what... I mean, what's in store for this team? And you, you saw, obviously, Blake Snell had, had an amazing year last year. It's just crazy with, with them being the AL East and, and just the AL in general. It's, it's, it, was, it was really tough to, to sneak in those playoffs. Yeah, it's really difficult competition and hasn't gotten much easier this winter. But uh, this isn't so much a race-specific question, but because you're the first beat writer we've spoken to since games started to be played with the pitch clock, and since you wrote about some of the young race pitchers' reactions to it, what were your impressions of your first pitch clock's game, assuming that you haven't seen that in action in, in the minors, and, and what did the players think of it? Yeah, so the actual process was, was wild of how it was implemented because there were there were two games slated to be played before the Rays in terms of opening spring training for baseball, and I think both of those games were rained out, or one was a um, against college competition, so there 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 was no rule enforced. So they implemented the pitch clock at the beginning of the game without there was no really announcement or press release from from Major League Baseball, or actually when the game began all. All the writers inside the box, all the reporters, they're like, what is that clock? You know, obviously we, we figured out it was a pitch clock, 
but we at first everyone's like what is that and then halfway through the game we we receive a a release from MLB saying oh hey there's there's going to be a pitch clock in spring training so <laughs> it's like even those mishaps you you're seeing some mishaps around uh different stadiums where they're still trying to figure out i mean just the simple process of you know starting and ending the clock and then you know even from the the early perspective of you know oh we're going to we're going to throw this at you they in terms of the the timing of the release so Lots of adjustments still, but I mean, in terms of the Rays locally with, with those guys, I don't think they're going to have an issue. You know, we'll see when Charlie Morton pitches, how, how he handles it, a veteran guy like him in a live game setting with that clock. But so far, so good. The, the Rays, they've really shown no issues. A lot, a big part of that has to do is that they have 21 pitchers on that 40 man and over half of them are 25 or younger. So a lot of them are. You know, coming up through that farm system and they're used to that pitch clock in the minors. So it's uh, been a pretty seamless or easy transition for those guys. You mentioned Charlie Morton, and I think it made sense that a team like the Rays would go after him, like you said, very analytically inclined. He came from Houston, which is kind of similar in that respect. Uh, but Morton also signed the biggest free agent contract in Rays history. And do you know like what specifically Tampa saw in him that pushed them to make that investment and a guy who's getting up there in age a little bit yeah definitely it's it's a good thing you bought it bring up the age because you know with them trading away chris archer he was only i think 29 30 so i mean he definitely still has a future ahead of him charlie morton's already in his mid 30s but they they need that really solid number two behind you know they're not saying that he's gonna be the number two they really take out their ace but obviously the ace is blake I'd, I'd be very surprised if they started in front of him but i mean that's that's really what they're going with in spring training blake one uh charlie morton two and then tyler will 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 go three with the two openers behind them but not just that and you know you bring up the analytics but i mean simply to, to raise the age a little bit in the in the clubhouse that it's a relatively very young team up and down on really every position and, and like what i mentioned with the pitching staff with over half of them being 25 or younger so charlie he's been he's been in the league quite a long time so i mean you, you can see it in these first few days of spring training he's always offering little tips here and there i mean just even early mornings in the in the, in the clubhouse to to guys who might not even be on this roster. So, I mean, a veteran face like like that, and even the older guys, he might not even make the roster, but with what he brings to the table and the, his experience uh, for these spring games, for this spring ball period, it, the, the veteran experience has, has really helped this young team. You mentioned Glasnow as the only really established, if you could call him that, starter in this rotation, and he was obviously a top prospect with the Pirates, who was somewhat underwhelming in his early years in the majors. The Rays acquired him in the Archer trade. He seemed to make some changes for them down the stretch and showed some promise, and yet overall his numbers with the Rays were fairly similar to what they were with the Pirates. Do you know if he's working on anything new or what their hopes are for him this season? Yeah, he's actually added a slight pause to his delivery, and he tested it out in the first game. He, he just pitched a few days ago earlier this week, and, you know, he he's saying that it, it was pretty seamless, but obviously when you add any type of major change and a pause in your delivery is a, is a you know, it might be a slight thing, but the, after you've been pitching the same way for so long and you add just a little another factor, another element to your part, that part of your game, it's going to throw you off a little bit. So it's it's a, a great time for him to implement it now when the games don't matter. And I think, I mean, from what the, the coaching staff has seen in, in live bullpens and really just him throwing around and in this first game, 
it looks promising. It wasn't, you know, the, the Rays didn't win their first game today until they did eight innings. The pitching was, was looking a little rough and, and Cash wasn't really concerned about that through the, those first four or five games. They got their first one against the Orioles in eight innings. But back to glass now, it's really just paying attention to that pause and, and really sharpening up his delivery because anytime you add another element to, to your delivery, it's going to change up things uh, just a little bit. Moving on to, I guess, the offensive side, you've been writing about the first base competition because Tampa let CJ Cron, who was one of their better hitters last year, go uh, instead of tendering him a contract. They have G-Man Choi. They traded for Andy Diaz, who maybe reminds you of your football days, given his physique. <laughs> uh, and they have he's, a few he's pros- a chiseled guy, man. <laughs> uh, if he doesn't jack, I mean, what, 30 homers? It's, it's like, wow, those. <laughs> he, he's a big guy. And they have, you know, some prospects fighting for that position. There's also DH time to go around. So is there a sense yet in how that battle is shaping up? Or are they really waiting to see until the end of spring training? Yeah, I think for now, at least for this first, you know, month or so, Yan is going to be glued to third base just because of their rotation with, with, the, with a, you know, just a few minor uh, ticks here and there. So, I mean, through these first three games, it's really been G-Man Choi, <laughs> Brandon Lowe, and Nate Lau it's it's funny because, you know, with Brandon and Nate, those names are spelled similar, and they both came up through the minors, Brandon being called up late last year. And really, it, I mean, no one's really stuck out. G-Man, he, when spring ball opened, he had actually a few balls hit to him, but he's also had a couple mistakes here and there. Same with Brandon, who's, who's transitioning over from second base. He played a little bit of second base against the Orioles. But really, between them two, I don't think Nate Lowe, he's quite ready yet. Just because of, I mean, you know, you want to develop his bat a little bit more. Obviously, he's the he's the biggest of the three. So I think between G-Man and Brandon, that's that's really what's uh, stuck out there. And kind of like the turtle and the rabbit, no one no one's the rabbit right now, and, and everyone's just kind of feeling it out. And again, it's the first week of spring ball, so we'll see what develops here as the weeks progress. Yeah, this is sort of the the top prospect farm system episode for us because we're about to talk about the Padres who probably have baseball's best farm system. And after that, I think the Rays are are probably the class of baseball when it comes to prospects. So not only do you have to familiarize yourself with the major league roster, you also have to learn all the minor leaguers too. So is there anyone who stands out as someone who might be providing reinforcements that the cavalry could be coming at some point as soon as this season? Or is a lot of that minor league talent concentrated at the lower levels. Is there anyone fans should be looking out for as a, a possible 2019 arrival? Yeah, I think you look at it. I mean, we can we can stay right there with Nate. I mean, he his bat is he's really shown that he's got some power. I mean, you imagine a guy with that type of physique to to be able to hit the ball. Now it's really just comes back to, to sharpening his defense over at first and, and really making sure that he's ready. And beyond that, there are, there are guys who are a few few years away, I mean, Wander Franco, he's only 17 years old, but I mean, he's rated on Baseball America, even the athletic prospect rankings, I mean, top five. Whenever, I mean, Willie Adamas calls it, I mean, or figures out what he's doing uh, with his contract line in a few years, they, they definitely have some bright promise at that position. Elsewhere, I mean, I think you just have to continue to look at the pitching. They've got a ton of pitchers on that 40-man roster, but I mean, with this opener, it's like, you know, who can continue to be a bulk guy, who can continue to be an opener. And then it does those three main guys stay healthy. I think, I think health is a big issue when you're, when you're dealing with that opener. 
I was going to follow up with that because you're mentioning all the the pitching talent there. And one of the reasons probably that the opener was adopted the way it was last year was that the Rays rotation kind of fell apart about a year ago in spring training when Brett Honeywell had Tommy John surgery, Jose de Leon had Tommy John surgery. Those guys probably are not going to be back for opening day, but is there a hope that they could come back at some point this season and maybe the flexibility of the Rays pitcher usage allows them to work their way back in in a less strenuous role? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up Brent, Brent's name. He's uh, Actually, I've, I've quickly learned one of the most personable guys in that clubhouse, and you imagine when he's ready to come back from that TJ surgery. You know, he's still continuing his rehab. He's throwing a little bit of live VP. But when he's ready, you got to imagine they're, they're going to send him to Durham or, or maybe even start off in Charlotte and, you know, high A, low A, then, you know, throw him to Durham, get him a few starts. But, I mean, he could end up being a bulk guy. I think he's capable of that. He, he's been, he definitely has the hype in terms of before what happened to his injury. But, but like what you said, it's that's, that's kind of how the opener came about. They had, you know, at least a set rotation of four guys last year with Faria and, 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 you know, the above guys you mentioned, obviously Archer, Blake Snell, and they kind of just continued to fall apart through, through spring and throughout the year. And that's how the opener came about. But hey, the opener works for them. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's, they're going forward with three guys and the two openers behind them. And, uh, we'll see how health plays into, uh, a factor this upcoming season. The guy that all those pitchers are throwing to is new this year in Mike Zunino. And I'm wondering, I haven't really heard him talk much about it, but does he have to approach games differently now that he's not just in a new organization, but catching such a different philosophy now, such an organizational difference that, you know, he is an okay hitter who strikes out a lot, but on the defensive side, he's always been a good defensive catcher. Is the adjustment any different for him? Yeah, right off top. I mean, you know, he's obviously going to be the lead, lead guy at the dish with, with Mike Perez and Shuko battling it out behind him. But, but so far, I mean, in speaking with him and just the, the pitchers who have thrown to him, they're pretty happy. And they, they, it seems like this chemistry is developing at a pretty rapid pace. He, he's a little bit of a bigger guy. And, you know, so it makes it pretty, if you're on the mound, I guess, easier to throw to him or easier to locate. But in terms of what the Rays are doing, I, you know, they had they had their long term long term guy last year under the dish, but I think Zanino is going to fit in just fine. Uh, he's he's and really just his story, his background. He's always wanted to come back to the Florida area, the Tampa Bay organization, and now he's in that part of his career, and it seems like he's really ready to, to take off of it. And at least and and behind him, uh, Shupo, he's had a you know a pretty pretty so so decent spring so far, at least since I've arrived. Uh, he's, he's made some plays. He showed that he's eager to, uh, you know, want to get put out uh, on steals and, and, you know, make that those extra efforts. But I think Mike Perez might get that spot in front of him behind Zunino. But in terms of, of, of the caster position, Zunino is definitely, uh, it, it seems like he's fitting in quite well. So one of the factors that kept the Rays on the outside looking in last year, even though they got so close, was that Kevin Kiermeyer kind of had a lost season amid surgery for his thumb and uh, other issues. Is there every expectation that he will get back to what was really a not quite MVP caliber, but pretty close to that level of performance for the previous three seasons? Yeah, that's actually one of the, the biggest things that I'm looking forward to seeing, guys, is uh, in, in speaking with Juan and Mark Topkin at the, the Tampa Bay Times, it's, 
you get a pretty good view uh, from from the press box of really the outfield and to see how much ground these outfielders cover. And they they told me get ready because uh, KK is known to make those plays. And and they and I think we all think that that he's set to to kind of have a bounce back year. He he was disappointed with his numbers last year and obviously had a reason a right to to feel that way. You know, it's funny because he he mentions that, and then although meaningless in this first spring game, he the first ball hits him, he falls on his back, fails to locate it, and he's had a a couple, and he actually injured or not injured, but roughed up his right heel, it, it bruised up a little bit, uh, so missed a few games, was back in action against the Orioles, and made not questionable, but a, a few so-so decisions on on terms of tracking the ball today. But I think you know once he's back in form. It's going to be exciting to watch him and just um, seeing him if he can put it together at the plate and, and really getting back to those uh, gold glove years that he had. Tommy Pham plays next to Kiermaier in the outfield, and he came over to Tampa at the trade deadline last year and was one of the best hitters in baseball after he moved over. What like changes did he make after he went to Tampa, and does he expect to continue that hot streak in 2019? Yeah, with Tommy, there was some you know, a little bit commotion that, you know, he changed his swing a little bit, just, you know, minor, minor tweaks. But honestly, guys, I think it was just a, a switch of environment. You look at, at St. Louis in that manager situation, you know, Matheny was not the right guy to handle a guy like Tommy Fan, And even what emerged from his teammates in that clubhouse with, with what was said between Pham and the rest of the guys, he just needed a new, new situation, new scenario. And you saw, I mean, and when he came back from injury, he really uh, just, like what you said, became uh, one of the better hitters in the league. And, you know, it, it's funny that we mentioned these these scenarios with, with the team and with, with, with other players because, you know, his arbitration past offseason that he just won uh, recently. But with that behind him, I think he's all set to go. And really this spring, he, he's kind of showed it. I mean, it's it's only been a couple games, guys, but his bat's still there. And uh, we'll just see where he takes off once the games start counting. And since we're talking about all the other outfielders, we might as well ask an Austin Meadows question. Meadows, like Glasnow, a former top 10 overall prospect in baseball with the Pirates, who seemed to stagnate a little bit at AAA. You never know if a, a prospect like that is just blocked or bored at that level after he succeeded there. But he made his major league debut last year. He hit pretty well. Is there an expectation that he will kind of repeat those numbers over the course of a full season, or are they hoping that there's more in there? Yeah, and speaking with Kevin Cash just a few days ago, he's really liked what Austin has done this spring at the plate for him to, to take this next step and kind of step into that, you know, outfield. You're you're going to be the, the main guy behind these guys' role. It, it's really his defense. It, it's, it's whether his speeding up that first step and, and just, tracking the ball better and I'm sure he's going to make the most of these opportunities with Sam with KK and and just learning from those guys because you know those guys are are some of the better ones in the business in terms of you know locating that ball when it's up there and the trap is the I'm still going to get used to that I actually haven't uh, been inside that yet for a regular season game you know it's, it's I've heard you can lose that ball pretty quick when it's up there with that ceiling on the roof so so with Austin Meadows is, is just becoming better defensively and, and and I think just really with his agility in terms of tracking the ball. Joey Wendell was by some measures the best rookie in the American League last year, but he finished fourth in rookie of the year voting behind three, I guess, more touted players in Shohei Otani and the two Yankees. Did the Rays really think like he's one of the more underrated players in the game now? I know he also 
played basically every position last year, but is he going to be locked into second base more regularly? Yeah, with Joey, I mean, how do you, it's how do you build off that year? I think, um, I was actually just looking at the numbers earlier today. In terms of overall hitting, overall batting, he was, I think, top three or four among those guys. You know, the power isn't quite there. I mean, although with the opportunity, they only had seven home runs, but with him, it's just continuing to solidify his, his defense. And again, he's, he's young. He had that rookie year. It's really just finding his place in this infield and, and not just with that. I think once they find a set guy around him at first and, and with Yandi at third, it's just playing with the same guys. It's spring there. You know, you're experimenting with so many different different people, some guys who aren't going to be on the team. So with Joey, just getting comfortable with the surroundings and continuing to, to build off those numbers last year. And one more thing I wanted to ask you, the Rays have a, a new position on their major league staff this year, the analytics coach, their R&D director from last year, Jonathan Ehrlichman, has moved down to the dugout. I don't know whether he'll literally be in the dugout, but he'll be in uniform during games. Don't know if you've had a chance to talk to him, but have you heard anything about him or from him and, and what sort of role he might occupy? Because this is kind of a new thing. I actually haven't had a chance to, to speak with him. It's just been a really busy past yeah. few days, but, but that's definitely on the list of things to do up here in these next coming days. But really when you see that and, and you see a hiring like that, it's just, you think back to the Rays and, and what they're trying to do. It's, it's, it goes, goes back to their front office, uh, to the youngest guys in baseball and, and what they're trying to do with, with their analytics department and, and just being up front and, in front of things uh, compared to the rest of the league. I, it's not surprising to see that type of move. All right. So we end all of these preview segments by asking the guest for a win total prediction, which I feel bad about now because you're just getting <laughs> to know this team and uh, you've made time to talk to us. And here we are putting you on a spot and asking you how many wins they're going to have this year. But we've done it for everyone else. So I guess we have to stick with it. What is your initial impression? Obviously, it's going to be tough to make the playoffs no matter how many games they win this year, but where are you expecting this team to end up record-wise? You know, I'm going to keep it at 90. The, it's just really hard with, with them being in that AL East and just considering how young these guys are. You know, I come from uh, this past season covering the NFL, and the main story all season was obviously with Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy and, and their discord, but it was really Rodgers and his wide receivers. He had three rookie young guys. And I think, uh, you know, it's totally different, you know, apples and oranges, but still the same concept with young guys. I mean, they just don't have that type of experience, don't have as many years in the league compared to all these other teams, especially when you're competing. And I know the the Yankees and Red Sox obviously have their young guys too, but I mean, there's those storied franchises with with tons of experiences up and down. So I, I think 90 is a, a, a good tracker for them. 90 isn't good enough. <laughs> Um, they're, they're aiming to, to make the, the playoffs to wild card or whatever it may be, but I think 90 is a pretty good number to, to, to leave the base. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate you joining us. We wish you luck with uh, getting to know everyone and getting to feel at home on the raised beat. I think you're well on your way and uh, you can all follow Josh's coverage of the Rays all season long at The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at JCT Sports. Josh, thank you very much. Yeah, guys, I really appreciate it. It's going to be an interesting season for an interesting team, and thanks for having me on. All right, and as an addendum, I think we can say that if Jeff Sullivan gets his way, Wilmer Font will be playing a prominent role in this pitching staff. Riley O'Brien will be on the big league team by May, and Oliver Drake will remain in the Rays organization. A lot of players Jeff likes play for the team that now employs Jeff. The 
We miss you, Jeff. Hope the new job is going well. So we will take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Dennis Lynn to discuss the Padres. Something has to happen soon to make life better for you. Alright, so we are back and we are joined as we have been, I believe, for uh, the past few years by Dennis Lynn, who covers the Padres now for The Athletic. Welcome back, Dennis. Thank you. So we have talked about the Padres on this podcast fairly recently, which is not always the case, but we've had a lot of occasion to talk about them lately. How much of a surprise was it to you that Machado signed with San Diego as someone who covers the team? Because I think, you know, we all read the article about how they were supposedly going to be more willing to spend in the future, but we didn't know that would happen so soon or so dramatically. Yeah, I was, I was, I was surprised that they, uh, jumped in it. Not so much by their reasoning for doing it. They saw a couple of tweets from Bob Nightingale and Buster Olney that really piqued their interest about the, uh, supposed White Sox offer to Manny Machado at, uh, 175 million. So you figure, okay, if they're ever going to have a chance, uh, that makes sense that they would jump in after seeing numbers like that. Uh, it did turn out that Dan Lozano, Manny Machado's agent, was still looking for 300 million. And that's in fact what he got. I'm just surprised that the, Potters looked at 10 years and 300 million, but I think they looked at the, the market around them. They looked at not many teams staying in on these guys, uh, Harper and Machado. And they also looked at Nolan Arenado, who uh, obviously just signed with uh, a long-term extension with Colorado and looked at uh, Anthony Rendon. So they probably weren't going to be able to get those guys, so why not uh, do as much homework as possible on Man Machado, who is a guy they had concerns about makeup-wise. And uh, the fit positionally was just perfect because they needed a third baseman, and they liked the uh, the fit with Fernando Tatis Jr. as a you know a fellow infielder who can mentor him as he uh, comes up through the league. So they decided to jump in. I just, uh, again, the, the years and the money to me were pretty stunning. Um, but uh, that said, the, uh, the article that you're referring to about their finances, I think uh, Ron Fowler, the executive chairman, is a very bottom line focused individual. So when they're getting ready to bid on guys, he tends to think about stuff like that. So that angle might have, uh, you know, taken precedence for a while, but they clearly have money to spend. And I'd be surprised if they don't do, don't do something else the rest of this spring. Yeah. So I think all of us sort of looking from the outside, we saw how good and deep the Padres farm system was and knew this team's going to be a contender in years to come but weren't necessarily expecting them to be ready in 2019. But now that Machado's in the organization now, and like you say, they might make other moves, are they moving more aggressively now that they might have, uh, now that they've sort of started opening their window? Uh, definitely more aggressive than they would have without Machado. Uh, that being said, I think, I'm not sure how much this moves up their timeline. They always had 2020 in mind, 2021, those two years. Getting Machado, you know, obviously there's a lot for the infield, for the defense, for, for the offense most of all, because they, they haven't had that like that. But their pitching is still, the bulk of their best pitching prospects are still a couple years away. Uh, you think about Mackenzie Gore, Luis Patino, Chris Paddock, who uh, had a very good Cactus League debut against the Brewers. He's basically ready, but he's going to be under a innings and uh, pitch count limit most likely for another year. So if you're going to uh, wait on those guys, uh, and you don't know how many of them are going to get, going to get, you know, hurt or take a while to develop. Uh, 
that you know makes you believe that uh, they they need to wait another year for those guys to develop. And the good thing about Machado is he's only 26. So uh, 2020 still the target. They uh, they just need an excellent major move on the pitching front uh, to make it possible. Yeah, and that is really the thing that's going to hold them back this year. The pitching. There's such a an array of interesting position player prospects and guys who are already at that level, but. As for the pitching, assuming they don't go and get Dallas Keuchel or someone who's still on the market, how are they going to try to piece together that staff and and who might we see come up at some point during the season who could provide a boost of some sort? Yeah, so Paddock has already been mentioned. He's uh, he's probably their right-handed pitching prospect. Uh, He's going to be a guy who I think uh, fans are going to hear a lot of, and they already have heard a lot of him. Austin Hedges said after his Texas League debut, that was the easiest game he's ever caught. Just he barely had to move his glove. Uh, that's how good his command is. Uh, he needs a curveball. That's what he's been working on to uh, become like a true ace. But he's someone uh, people in the organization are very excited about. Joey Lucchese and Eric Lauer expect to take a step forward in the second year. Uh, they have another guy, Logan Allen, who was Texas League pitcher earlier. Uh, pitched with Paddock for a little bit in double A and he's a guy who's only twenty one, but he's probably uh maybe the most polished pitching prospect who hasn't reached the majors yet. So uh he and Paddock are expected to make uh impact at some point this year for sure. If that's not an opening day, I would expect shortly thereafter. And uh Cal Quantrill, I think a lot of people forget about him. They still hope that uh his the life on his fastball is uh, returning. Uh his stuff's getting a little more crisp. Uh, he's talked about just uh, maybe getting out of whack a little bit, trying to think it too much last year, and he really saw some prospect list. So I think they're looking for him to re- reestablish himself. But uh, outside of that, I think they're going to most likely, aside from making maybe a move or two before the season starts, I think they're going to see how that young pitching plays out. And if they can uh, hold their own and the offense, uh, you know, improves pretty dramatically with Machado, I think you'll look at them making a major move at the trade deadline if they're reasonably close in the standings. Uh, but they've uh, signaled that they're pretty content to, uh, you know, see how the pitching pans out. But I, I'm still thinking they try to go and get uh, one or two pitchers for the season just because it's, uh, it's a lot to put on young pitchers if you uh, leave them by themselves. One area where the Padres have a lot of players and maybe not enough spots is the outfield where they have Will Myers moving back to the outfield and Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro and Franiel Reyes and Franchi Cordero and I'm probably forgetting someone, but... Have they given an indication of how the playing time will end up being distributed? Or, you know, do any guys have legs up? I know someone like Margot was really one of the early waves of prospects and maybe still has some potential he can tap into. Yeah, they're really uh, kind of giving the whole cross that bridge when we get through line for, for a lot of these uh, surpluses they have, including, you know, at catcher two with Austin Hedges and Francisco Mejia. But in the outfield, uh, they're going to let competition and health kind of dictate a lot of what they do before the season. But I definitely expect at some point one of these guys is going to get traded. You just have you know too many outfielders, not enough pitchers. Um, and if you want to go out and get a pitcher, uh, trade is probably a more attractive option than uh, free agency, just given what's left on the market. Uh, Keiko and Gio Gonzalez, too, Scott Boris clients, from what I understand, aren't the most attractive options to them. If the, if the price is right, they'll uh, definitely be interested. But uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, but for the outfield, I, I think uh, Will Myers uh, continues to be a trade candidate, um, although they, they do like his versatility. I know center field was a disaster for him a couple of years ago, but uh, they think better positioning, uh, deeper positioning for him since he has speed can, uh, can help him you know, bounce around a little bit if they need to, and that would help in a crowd. Uh, and then beside that, Framiel Reyes and Hunter Renfro are two guys they still like the power potential of, especially you know, Framiel being uh, younger. 
So I think, yeah, it's pretty messy right now. Uh, the good thing is a guy like Francis Cordero has minor league options, so they can stash him there in AAA for a little while. Uh, but I, again, yeah, I expect a trade or two before the season starts here. And do you see Mejia as a, a full-time catcher in the future? Because you do have Hedges as the defense first guy, and then Mejia is kind of the bat first guy. And I know there have been some questions about whether he could stick at catcher. So I'm wondering whether they see him as a backup for this year or as some sort of offense-defense platoon. Or I know he's also spent some time in the outfield. Not that the Padres need additional outfielders, but how does he fit into the picture? Yeah, right now I would handicap him as the... Uh kind of guy running second to, to Austin Hedges just because Hedges has the trust of the pitching staff and he's such a good defender that even if his offense doesn't take a step forward, uh, that's something you can really use with a young pitching staff. Um, but Mejia has you know done a lot of work on his receiving, on his game calling, on his blocking. It's just he, he has a way to be able to catch up to Hedges in that respect. And uh, he's, he's a guy who's, you know, he's still only 23. Maybe they stash him at AAA like uh, maybe, say, Cordero for a little bit, but uh, I think if you want to find out if you catch big league pitching, he needs to be catching big league pitchers. It's just kind of hard if uh, you want your <laughs> young pitching talent to uh, develop the best at the big league level. Uh, you want Hedges behind the play for most of that. So they, they claim he, they think he can be a big league catcher. I just, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a difficult fit to, you know, get them both involved for now. So I, I think he's not untouchable by any means if they see a trade out there. They like uh, the public trader, but at the same time, he's a guy with all-star potential. So, uh, yeah, maybe they do go that AAA route for a little bit. We're having to split some time and, you know, learn and watch hedges and uh, see how it goes from there. But uh, it's a dilemma for sure. One player we haven't talked about yet, maybe a surprise, is last season's biggest free agent, Eric Hosmer, who didn't necessarily have the best offensive numbers in his first year in San Diego, but... I don't know. He has that every other year thing going on. Are they expecting a bounce back in his second year? Yeah, they are. I don't know. A lot of people don't put a lot of stock into. He's more comfortable second year in his big contract. Uh, he felt too much pressure first year. I think there's some validity to some of that. And I think uh, they're very excited about uh, their new uh, lead hitting coach, Johnny Washington. I know that might kind of ring hollow in San Diego when they've had about a billion different hitting coaches uh, since Peckle Park opened. But uh, Washington's a guy who is really into uh, Juan Chango, and uh, he's a Craig Wallenbrock disciple. They think uh, he connects well with a lot of the guys, especially Hosmer. And they think, uh, you know, working with him for, you know, second year, they've already done some, you know, swing tweaks that we haven't been fully privy to. But uh, Hosmer apparently is focused on getting the ball into the air a little more, especially the opposite way. He doesn't need a change, you know, wholesale just because he had success in the past being who he is. But they think, they think if he can get the ball in the air a little more, he's going to be a pretty decent uh, first baseman and a compliment to Manny Machado. And I know part of the rationale for that contract was not just that the Padres were hoping for continued strong hitting or stronger hitting from Hosmer, which didn't materialize in his first year, but also the leadership aspect and the winning mentality, and he's won a championship, and it's a young team, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be much harder to put a value on that sort of thing than it is on his offense, for instance. But did you personally witness any of that? vaunted mentorship did you see anything positive rubbing off on young players or is there a reason to think that he is adding a lot of extra value in that area yeah that's a difficult question to answer um other players his teammates and they're mostly younger than him they all rave about him and uh the insight he provides and uh, he takes guys aside and uh, gives them you know advice on what to do and what not to do and that's all very valuable obviously last year 
They have it. Let's say so they won 66 games. So in a year like that, you can question how much that's really worth it. But at the same time, these guys are uh, more mature this year. They think it'll pay off down the road. And uh, just just this past week, uh, you know, some of the younger players talked about Hosmer kind of speaking up in the clubhouse, uh, addressing the entire clubhouse and uh, saying some things that they'd keep in the clubhouse. But you imagine that has an impact on a guy like Chris Paddock, say, coming in, being wide-eyed in a big league clubhouse for the first time. And uh, with Manny Machado here, I think Eric Hosmer is probably a positive influence. Uh, you almost wonder if Manny Machado would have, you know, not signed here if Eric Hosmer weren't here. They're uh, familiar with each other going back to, you know, their days in South Florida. So there's there's an unquantifiable aspect to Hosmer. It's just I don't know if we'll ever be able to quantify it. So how does Ian Kinsler fit into this team? He signed, of course, before Machado did, and he was going to maybe spend some time at third, maybe some time at second. Now Machado's there. You have Urias at short. You have him maybe headed for second at some point with Tatis coming up. Is there a path to playing time for Kinsler on this team, and is he okay with sort of a subordinate role? Yeah, it's funny. His first day in camp, uh, we were asking him about third base and the uh, possibility of taking some grounders there because he only has two career innings at third base and the rest are all at second base. And he uh, he said something along the lines. He was actually being a little sarcastic. Uh, he said something along, along the lines of, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, it could be, you know, interesting or fun or something like that, um, or maybe not. <laughs> and then uh, kind of like raised his eyebrows. So I don't know if he knew something about Machado. Uh, that was like the day before Machado agreed. Uh, but yeah, he's he's now working exclusively at second base uh, since you have Machado here now. And I think the most likely scenario is he starts the season as the opening day second baseman. You put uh, Luis Arias at, at shortstop until uh, Fernando Tatis comes up from the minors. And uh, after that, I think uh, he's going to spell Arias. And if Luis uh, struggles a little bit, he serves as, as insurance. But other than that, I think, yeah, he, he came into this uh, deal with the understanding that it's probably no longer going to be, uh, you know, full-time duty for him. And, uh, you know, he's fine with that. A two-year, $8 million deal for a 36-year-old. That's uh, a pretty good bargain, I think. And uh, he's, he's willing to impart some of his knowledge to uh, Tatis and Arias, just like uh, they're expecting Machado to do for Tatis and Arias. So they, they think he's going to be a net positive in the clubhouse. And uh on the field because he can still be a pretty good defender. Well, we've seen that the Padres farm system is the consensus best in the game, maybe for the second year running, but it seems to really have transcended that where it's not just the best in the game, but maybe it's the best in recent memory or the best that some prospect evaluators have seen ever. To what do you attribute their assembling this collection of talent? Is it mostly astute drafting or targeting minor leaguers in trades or international spending? I mean, I'm sure it's a, a bit of all of the above, but how have they done this without necessarily bottoming out to the extent that, say, the Astros did for a few years? Well, they spent $80 million on international that one year, uh, a couple summers ago. That definitely has paid some dividends. Uh, even a guy like Luis Coutinho, who um, they signed for just a little over 300 k they found gems like that. And uh, the big money guys like Adrian Morahone and Jorge Onya, those two, in the case of Morahone, he's uh, he's a good prospect. Hasn't pitched the full season yet. Onya hasn't panned out. So you're going to have some uh, swings and misses. But if you spend $80 million, uh, <laughs> you're definitely expecting to get, to get some kind of return. And they did get a return on that. And then aside from that, uh, like you noted, they, they haven't bought him out completely at the you know big league level. So, but they still had a lot of draft money just because uh, of their record. So they've drafted pretty smartly, I think uh, most people would agree. And 
guy like Joe, Joe Lucchese and Eric Lowry, those guys, uh, you know, surface pretty quickly. So they're seeing some results from there. And, and then, yeah, just, uh, as you mentioned, they targeted, you know, prospects and trades and Preller's, uh, Asia Preller's style targeted the highest, uh, highest upside prospect, you know, regardless of his level. And some of those trades have paid off too. So I think you, you have to give them credit for, you know, sticking to that model of, uh, you know, going for guys with big tools and big upside. And that wasn't always the case in San Diego. Sometimes they went for guys who were just closer to the major, major league level than, you know, being exciting players. So they've, Definitely uh, benefited from just going after sheer numbers, and some of them have panned out. So you have some very exciting prospects who can, uh, you know, be major contributors at the big league level. And just the depth of the system is some of these guys are guys who will reach the majors and make some kind of, uh, you know, impact. It might not be a star impact, but they'll definitely be contributors as well. And what do you expect the fan support to be like this year? Have you sensed an increasing excitement? It seems like since Petco Park opened, the floor has been fairly high for attendance at Padres games. Like even last year when they were a last place team, they were 11th in the NL and still drew, you know, 2.1 million or more than that. So the floor hasn't been that low, but with Machado in the fold, with these prospects arriving do you expect there to be a big swell in attendance or interest in the team this year? I go back to 2015 when they acquired Matt Kemp, uh, Justin Upton, Derek Norris, uh, Craig Kimbrell. I mean, those guys were all pretty good players at the time, uh, maybe on at least one side of the ball. <laughs> but they were nothing close to what Machado is, and Machado is 26 and in the prime of his career. And uh, if you've uh, heard, they, they've already, according to the Padres, they've sold a million dollars in tickets more than they had projected at this point in time. So that's a pretty clear indication that people are very excited about uh, Manny Machado. Just just the fact that they haven't had a bona fide, you know, positional star since probably, you know, Adrian Gonzalez. Um, that, that gets people in San Diego excited. They don't have any other, you know, major franchises in the for right now, so... And they have been, you know, so skeptical of ownership, uh, actually doing something like this. I think they're still in shock, but they're also in a state of euphoria. This is the fact that the Potters were the ones who did something like this. So I think, uh, yeah, you'll see a pretty healthy bump in attendance here. Yeah. And I guess the the last thing I'm wondering is whether you think that they will dip into their prospect resources now to put the finishing touches on the winning team that they're assembling here. Do you think that the payroll will increase significantly in the next year or two, or will they deal from depth and figure out where they are set and where they have some surplus parts that they can trade for established players? I think they're going to do all those things. They kind of have to to uh, you know, diversify their uh you know avenues for acquiring talent they need to put around Machado and uh Tatis and Arias and, and guys like Paddock. Uh they 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 have too many prospects for not enough spots. Obviously that's a good problem to have and you, you don't know what you have in some of these prospects. But if they're as confident as they think they are, they, as they seem to be in their evaluation skills, uh you, you have to bite the bullet at some point and uh, go out and trade some of these guys, especially some of the surplus guys for uh Say a guy like Noah Syndergaard, not to say that's going to happen anytime soon. Looks like the Mets want to keep him for now or, uh, you know, another legitimate ace because that's their number one need. And, uh, as we've seen, uh, it's going to probably take, you know, top prospects for that to happen. Uh, probably hasn't had to do that yet, which kind of makes this interesting. He hasn't had to make a deal where he surrenders multiple uh, prospects he really likes in order to get a, you know, a really good major league player. So I think the next, uh, next few months will be really interesting for him. 
Yeah. I thought I was done, but I one more question that uh, I wanted to ask because your pinned sure. tweet for a while now has been a feature you wrote about Robert Stock, who's going to be part of this Padres pen. And we've seen the Padres, even last year, had a fantastic bullpen. And, you know, you think of this as the, the Bud Black era, the Kevin Towers days when they were finding new relievers and building good bullpens year after year. But they did that last year, too. So I wonder if you can forecast whether the success they had in the pen last year, which is something that can be pretty fickle from season to season, whether that will continue this year and what stock will play in that, because I want to give you a chance to talk about your story on him because he's an interesting story himself. Yeah, Robert Stark's a really fascinating person, a really fascinating path, career path, in my opinion. He uh, used to be pretty much the next big thing. He was Baseball America's Youth Player of the Year uh, for like three three years running in a row uh, when he was a preteen to his early teens. So people were expecting him to be either like a star catcher or uh, you know a really good pitcher pretty much right away after uh, after he went to USC as a yeah, 16 year old. Uh, that that didn't pan out for him. He uh, kind of flamed out in the minors, and then he uh, he was converted full time to the mound. And then he he was just looking at you know good pitchers in the majors, and he saw that they all throw pretty hard in general. So he decided to try to train his arm to throw as hard as possible. So he did that through some very unconventional methods. Uh, he does this electro stem machine that um, I think most normal people can't stand the uh, pain threshold that he has to go through to. Uh, to use it so he claims that's kept his arm healthy and that's uh kept his arm you know able to you know throw pretty much every day even when he's hitting 100 and his ultimate goal is to throw 105 so uh, i just found that really interesting uh but he, yeah he's just an example of a guy that you can always find in san diego he was a minor league sign uh last year and um they, they do a pretty good job on that side i think of uh just because they've had the luxury of being able to throw things against the wall of uh, you know finding gems like that um, but in, in general, I would say with the advancements in today's game, uh, with uh, the knowledge of matchups and all that, Padres are pretty forward thinking with, uh, you know, matching up relievers and against, you know, uh, batters they do well against. So they definitely took advantage of that last year. And I think they had the, one of the highest F wars by a bullpen, you know, pretty much Padres history ever. Yeah. So I think you'll see them continue to do that. Andy Green's pretty forward thinking with that. But they, they do have a lot of arms in the system, and some of the starters that don't work out are going to you know, move to the bullpen. And they've got a guy, Andres Munoz, who's uh, 19 and throws 103. So I expect you might see him like this season. Uh, they, they have you know, arms like that, so I think they'll keep that bullpen stock pretty well. All right, so we always end this by asking for a win total prediction, which is probably a more interesting question this year than it was when we asked you in the past. So where are you pegging the Padres this year? I think they're going to go out and get a pitcher, whether that's uh, soon or before the trade deadline, assuming they're you know, relatively in it. So I'm going to give them 80 wins, which is almost unheard of in Padres land, especially recently, <laughs> but 80 wins is my guess. All right. Well, you can always uh, read Dennis's coverage of the Padres for The Athletic. His reporting and his writing is always great, and hopefully the Padres are giving more people reason to read it. So go check him out there and find him on Twitter at Dennis T. Lynn. Dennis, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Zach, thank you very much for filling in. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on. So that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. I guess we need an official podcast policy toward the Rays. Are we going to bear a grudge? Are we going to shun them like we once shunned the Reds? I think not. They offered Jeff an opportunity he found appealing. Did that offer deprive all of us of the pleasure of Jeff's company? Yes, it did. But surely that wasn't the Rays' intent. They just wanted Jeff's company themselves. We can all understand that. And now we should wish for Jeff's success. We appreciate you bearing with us at this transitional time. And we will have something to announce about the next permanent co-host soon. I did notice that our Patreon support has actually increased since Jeff made his announcement about leaving. I'm going to interpret that as a vote of confidence in the show itself and in me rather than in approval of Jeff's departure, and I really do appreciate that. I hope and think that the transition will justify your confidence. You know, I meant to ask Zach to share his feelings about Zach Britton switching from Zach with an H to Zach with a K, because Zach Cram is with an H, and I know he was outraged that Britton switched to K. Didn't ask him. There's always something I forget to say or ask on each episode. Sometimes I share it with you here. Maybe next time. One other thing to note, after we recorded, Jeff Passan reported that MLB made a counter proposal to the Players Association based on the back and forth that they're having about various rules changes, and in this proposal, MLB offered to push back the implementation of the pitch clock until at least 2022, so we were just talking to Josh about how unobtrusive it is, but it may not intrude for a few years, and from the sound of Jeff's report, it seems like just about nothing may happen this year, and all the changes that we've discussed on previous podcasts might actually come to pass next year or the year after or the year after that maybe after they're tested in the atlantic league mlb changes slowly when it changes at all you can join the list of those who have decided to support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some small monthly amount, as have the following five listeners, Chad Jobin, Jack Hughes, Doug Gale, Joe Drew, and Barry Gilpin. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. Join many of the discussion and speculation threads about the next co-host. I'm not trying to increase suspense here. That's just the way it's working out for reasons outside of my control, but hey, maybe it provides a distraction from our impending demises. You can send your comments and questions for me and the next co-host to podcast.fangraphs.com or by messaging us via Patreon. If you're a supporter, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book with Travis Sochik, The MVP Machine, which comes out late this spring. Our publisher let us know today that there are many pre-orders already in, and they're very pleased about that. So thanks to those of you who have already placed your orders and we will be back with another episode soon how can I warn you my tongue turns to dust like we've discussed doesn't mean that I don't care it means I'm partially there Gonna need to be